read, uh, starting in verse 2, we're going to read through verse 18. So this fall, we're in the middle of a series, we're waist deep, um, studying the attributes of God, and so we're likening it to a mountain lookout, and at this mountain lookout, we're looking out not at a mountain range, but we're looking out at God himself, and that's the goal of our study, is just to stop and consider who our God is, who our God is. And so we're going to learn this morning from the book of James. So hear the word of God, starting in verse 2, James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits, of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, we are your people and we have gathered today to receive from you. And we say we need you this morning. We need your word. We cannot go on living without your word. And so we pray, would you be pleased to feed us and fill us up this morning? We need eyes to see and we need ears to hear and we need hearts to feel. Would you be pleased to implant your word within us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off by listing off a few words this morning. The words are these, doubt, insecurity, fickleness, anxiety. These are words that are common to our lives, sadly so. For example, perhaps this week you've watched the news, or maybe if you don't watch the news, you've open up your phone and you read a few new re- news reports on your phone and after looking at the news, you thought to yourself, what in the world is, is going on? Or another example, you've worked all day, you put in your eight hours or whatever your, your work allotment is, you go home at the end of the day, you come home, you say, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my life? Why am I doing this day after day? After day, or, or another example, after a conversation with a friend, you have some time to, to sit back and reflect on that conversation, and you say to yourself, why did I say that? Why didn't I just keep my mouth shut? Why did I, why did I talk like that? 
So doubts and anxieties plague us, and there are doubts and anxieties like the ones I listed that are normal for us. We experience them week by week, day after day, but then there are some doubts, there are some anxieties that are worse than others. There are some doubts and anxieties that exist within our personalities, and these doubts and anxieties, that they, they trouble us. We ask questions like, well, well who am I? What am I? Where am I going? And then there are doubts and anxieties that go all of the deeper, all the deeper. There, there are doubts and anxieties that, that touch the, the most insecure places of our lives. We ask questions like, well, does this God of the Bible really love me? Is this God of the Bible really for me? Can I really trust that he is good and, and wise and righteous? Can I really take him at his word? Does he really exist? Doubts and anxieties, trouble, fickleness, these are all words that we deal with. And these are words that James is really concerned about, as we can see in chapter one. James is concerned about this matter of doubting. In fact, that is one of the main reasons that he wrote the letter that he wrote to the churches. He wrote that so that God's people would learn to put away all doubting. Very simply, we can say that James' purpose in writing the letter that he did was so that God's people would no longer resemble waves of the sea that are driven to and fro by the wind. He does not want God's people unstable or fickle or double-minded. Rather, James wrote the letter that he did for this reason, so that God's people would become stable, that they would become steadfast and immovable, that God's people, when the, the trials and temptations of this life come like a storm blow in, they would be unmoved and undisturbed by them. Or James puts it, verse four, he writes, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Even more, he wants God's people so complete, so immovable, that when these storms and trials come, they rejoice in them. We see this in verse two, count it all joy. And so if we're listening to James, we're receiving that, we're looking at our own lives, we see our doubts, we see our anxieties, we see our troubles, we, we see where James wants to take us, he wants to make us immovable and steadfast, and we ask, well, James, how are you going to get me from over here to over here? I want to go there, but how? Well, as we look at chapter one, James employs several different tools to do that. First of all, James comes to us and he informs us, he starts to teach us, he tells us about what God is doing in this world. He tells us that trials and tribulations are gifts given to us by a sovereign God. Gifts, if we make use of them by faith, will produce in us steadfastness, making us immovable. And James does more than that. He tells us what God is doing in the world, and then he gives us practical instruction in light of that. In the midst of our trials and our troubles, we shouldn't pretend to be self-sufficient. We shouldn't be self-reliant. Instead, James counsels us we should learn to lean into God. And so he counsels us that we should pray. Verse six, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. James also does some motivational work and we need some motivational work. He holds out the carrot stick for us. He says, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. James is urging us forward. He's saying, Christian, look ahead. There is something coming your way that's, that's worth the fight. There is a crown of life. Remain steadfast and movable for that. And James also warns us, sternly so. He wants to wake us up and sober us. 
He tells us the consequences of of living a faithless life. Look at verses six and seven. James says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. We ask, why? Why is that so important? And James says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So James is wise, and we taste his wisdom when we receive his words, and when we not only receive his words, hearing them, but when we put them to practice, obeying them in our life. But we can't stop here with what I just said from James, for if we do, we will miss out on the most important thing that James has to tell us. So look closely with me at verses 16 and 17. So James writes, beginning verse 16, and he says this, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And those are words that that catch our attention. They wake us up. James isn't fooling around with us. He has something important to tell us, very important. So he says, don't be deceived. Then he goes on and he says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. And so James is asking, what is the source of good gifts? And he answers, it's not me, it's not you, it's not some creaturely or earthly source, rather it comes from above. Every gift is coming down from above. And James removes any sort of confusion here about what he might mean. James says this, coming down from the Father of lights. So far, so good. Now now catch this. This is the climax of what James is saying. James says this about the source of all good gifts. He says this about our great and our good God. He says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now just take a step back from all of that. Do you see what James is doing this morning in chapter 1? In verses 16 and 17, James puts down his tools on his workbench and he does what? He just brings us to God, to fickle, to insecure, to doubting, to anxious people like you and me. James just holds up God. He holds up the God who does not change, and in fact, the God who who cannot change. He's holding up to us this, this perfect, stable deity. And he comes to us, he's preaching, and he's ministering to our hearts, and he's saying this, behold, behold God. Here is the source of all security and stability and steadfastness, the God who does not change. In fact, the God who cannot change. And that's how James ministers to anxious and doubting and fickle people. And as we think about what James does here, James' ministry brings us to our doctrine this morning. This morning, we're going to study the immutability of God. And so our sentence this morning is, God is Immutable. God is immutable. Now, immutable is not a word that we use very much. Maybe you've heard that word in church before. Maybe someone was praying and they were praising God and they were saying, God is immutable. So it sounds odd, but it's not a very hard word to understand. It simply means that God does not change. Who God was, who God will be, is the same as the God who is. In fact, we can go further. God cannot change. For God to be God means that God cannot go undergo any variation or revision or simply, as we're saying this morning, change. And so the Bible loves to teach this doctrine, and it does so with color and a bit of flair. And so for other sermons and other doctrines, we've had to use a lot of, a lot of illustrations and metaphors. So last week, we were learning the simplicity of God And so we had to use the the metaphor, the illustration of a a recipe and a stained glass window, and we had to go to Johnny Cash to get some help to understand God's simplicity. But this week, we don't have to do any of that because the Bible supplies metaphors and illustrations for us. And I want to just begin our study of God's immutability by pointing out two of them to you. 
And so we find our, our first helper in James. So go back to verse 17, and I'll read it again. So James says this. This is our first help. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James identifies our God as the Father of lights. He is the God who made the heavens and all the luminaries within, the the sun, the moon, the stars. And James wants us to think about God and his relationship to light. In fact, he wants us to contrast, I think, God with the lights of the heavens. And so the sun gives light by day and the moon by night. And James wants us to pause here and think about it. So I just want to think about the sun specifically. So think about the sun. There are all sorts of variations with the sun. From our vantage point, our earthly perspective, the sun rises and it sets. It moves across the sky, going from the east as it rises in the morning to the west where it sets in the evening. And during the winter months, there's change with the sun. We here in the north get less sun, and that means it gets cold and and frigid. And then in the summer, we get more sun, and it gets warmer. We have so much sun, we don't even know what to do with all of the sun. And to add to that, there's more variation. As the seasons change, the angle of the sun changes as we encounter it. And that's not to mention all of the shadows that the sun creates. At noon, you have hardly any shadow. It's just straight down. And then as the day grows longer, your shadow grows longer and longer and longer. So what is James' point here in verse 17? What is he after? His point is this. God is a perfect and true light. Or as James says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. With God, there is no alteration between day and night. Now there is light, now it is bright, and now it is is darkness, now it is pitch black. Not so with God, James is saying. Now with the sun, there is summer, and it is scorching hot, and then there is winter, and we're freezing cold. And James says, not so with God. There is no drastic shifting. With God, there are no changing or shifting shadows. He is the same today as he was yesterday, as he will be unto endless ages. Our God, if we use our imaginations here a bit, is a sun that never moves from his noontime position. If we could imagine it, a sun that's always straight above us. And if we're listening carefully to James, this has specific application. This means something ethically and morally about God. What does that mean? God is not a God who is good one day and then the next day decides to be evil. He's not a God who who waffles in his purposes for his people. Yesterday I was for you and I was faithful to you, but, but today I've changed my mind and now I'm going to give up on you. I'm letting you go. God is not a God who is a, a, a good father for a season and then for some reason, whether he got tired or he's imperfect, becomes a bad father in the next season. He does not give bread to his children one day and then the next day give them a rock or a scorpion or a serpent. That's not God and that's not the way he is. So if we want to understand God, James gives us our first help. He is this, he is this never changing, never moving, always giving forth perfect and true light. That's who God is, the father of lights. And now we can go to our second help. So God is a father of lights and now we can go to this. Our God is a rock. He's a rock. So this is something that's repeated again and again in the Bible. 
And so in Deuteronomy 32, 31, Moses makes his boast in the Lord. He's boasting before Israel and he's taunting Israel's enemies and he says, for their rock is not as our rock. Hannah uses the same word when she boasts in the Lord. She says, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. And David uses this word as well. David was a man of, of many troubles. His whole life was trouble. And so he learned this word well. And in the middle, midst of some of his troubles, he said this in Psalm 61, verses 2 and 3. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Now, there's good reason that the scriptures use this phrase for God again and again and again. He is like a rock. And sometimes they even call God, using this as his proper name, the rock. Why? Well, just think about it. Rock is the most durable, stable, stable dependable element in the forest that the ancient Israelites would have known and seen. While other elements in the forest give way, the rock remains the same. Think about a tree. A tree will die because it's dead, it's gonna get blown over by the wind and then eventually a rod and nobody will even know that a tree was ever there. Or think about the soil. What happens when a great rainstorm happens? So much water erodes and washes away all of the soil. Or think about all the plants in the forest. You've got grass and flowers and brush. Those things just change with the seasons. They're there for a while and then they're, they're gone. But a rock, it is there for generations, unmoved, unchanged, sturdy, dependable. You can go back to the forest a decade later and there is the same rock in the same place doing the same thing. Just think about those passages that I just read to you. They would immediately lose their power and their force if you replaced rock with some other word. Just imagine Moses, picture him in your mind. He's boasting before Israel and he's taunting Israel's enemies and he says, for their rock is not as our grass. That would make no sense. Or imagine Hannah praying. There is none holy like the Lord for there is no one besides you. There is no flower like our God. That doesn't work. Or imagine David surrounded by his enemies, sleepless at night because of all of them crying out, lead me to the pine tree that is higher than I. That wouldn't work. And the point here that the scriptures make hardly needs to be explained as they use rock. That the Lord, because of who he is, being unchangeable and perfect, is utterly dependable and sturdy for all who come to him. The feet who stand upon him will never be put to shame because the waves and troubles of this world cannot shake or disturb or move or erode this rock. This rock cannot die. This rock cannot decay. And the truth is set before us in vivid color this morning. Here's the truth. The man, the woman who hopes in this God, who sets his feet, her feet on this rock, will never be moved because the rock cannot be moved. And so if we want to understand immutability, we need to think of first a a sun shining in the sky, never moving from its noontime position. And then we need to think of a rock, this sturdy, dependable rock in the forest that never moves, that never arose, that's always there. These pictures help us grasp hold of this big doctrine, the doctrine of God's immutability. They're teaching us, they're training us what it means for God to be like who he is. But now I want to go deeper after using those those two words, sun and rock. 
Because we need to think about this. What does immutability mean for God? What does it mean for God himself to be immutable? And how does that change our thinking about him? So what I want you to do is I want you to picture in your mind a a clear glass bowl that you filled up with water. And so the water is clean and it's clear. It's just sitting there. And then in your right hand, if you're right-handed, you've got a bottle of food coloring. It's red. And you take that bottle of food coloring and you go to that, that bowl of clear water and you put a couple drops in. Well, what happens? There's a little part of the water that starts to get red and then you grab a spoon and you start mixing it. And what happens after a couple of moments? The whole bowl is red. Every particle of the water is tainted red. And the same is true for God in the doctrine of immutability. Because God is most simple, as we learned last week. All that is in God is God. Therefore, all that is in God, we must say, is immutable. Immutable. So we can just work this through and make this understandable. So let's just start with the being and existence of God. So that was the first doctrine that we landed on, that God is. We learned that from Hebrews 11.6. And so we can say that God's being and existence is immutable. So Isaiah 41 verse 4 says, I the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Lord never becomes more of who he is. God can't become more God. He is God. Nor does he ever lose any of who he is. He is pure, unchanging being. He is pure, never altering actuality. He is pure act. And this is where we differ with God. Think about your existence. You are a creature, and because you are a creature, you have potential. It means you are becoming something or someone. We are always in the process of becoming. We move from the state of non-being, so at one point in your life, you weren't something. And then you became something. And your whole life is, is the process of becoming something. At one time, you were short, and now you are taller. At one point, you were skinnier and smaller, and now you are bigger and wider. At one point in your life, you were foolish, and now you've grown to be wise. You were ignorant, and now you've grown to be knowledgeable. At some future point, you're going to stop being. You were something, and now you get sick, you decay, and then you die. God is immutable in his existence and essence, and we are unlike God in every way because we are always becoming something. We're in this state of flux and change. And we can go forward here. So God is immutable in his existence, and we can say God is immutable, or he is unchangeable when it comes to time. And so we are creatures bound by time. Moment by moment passes by, and all of these moments change us. We grow old. We celebrate birthdays. But time does not change God. 2,000 years ago, God was the same. And 2,000 years into the future, he will remain the same. In fact, God stands above time. He is eternal, and time is a creature reality that God has made and that exists, exists in God himself. He's made it. He is eternal. And so Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and all the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We can say that God is unchangeable when it comes to place or location. We can only exist in one place at a time. I can't be at church and at home at the same time. I can't be on the football field and at the grocery store at the same time. If I want to be at the football field, I need to leave here and travel to the football field. And if I want to go to the grocery store, I need to leave the football field and go to the grocery store. And if I'm moving from place to place, that means a change. 
I am changing. I'm moving from location to location. And if you move too many locations, what happens? You get tired. All of that change wears us out. But with God, he does not change. He has never changed locations, for he is omnipresent. His presence invades all of created reality. Psalm 139, verses 8 through 12 says this. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be as night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You hear what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, if I were able to travel into the heavens, you are there. Or if I dug down into the, the bowels of the earth, into Sheol, you are there. For the Hebrew, the, the farthest place in the mind was across the seas. And if you were to travel out into the seas, even there God's hand would find him. He cannot escape God's presence. And this means something quite stunning. Herman Boving puts it like this. In his immensity, there is not a speck of space. In his immensity, there is not a speck of space. And we can keep going forward here. God is unchangeable in his knowledge. God cannot learn. And he cannot learn because that would require a change. He would have to add knowledge unto himself. Nor can God forget anything. For that too would require a change. And so God is omniscient. He possesses all knowledge, past knowledge, present knowledge, future knowledge. He has it all completely and perfectly and intuitively. He's unchangeable in his will. God does not vacillate. He does not make a plan and then scuttle it or get up to the line of scrimmage and see the defense and and call an audible at the last second. His will has never changed. In fact, his will cannot change. No man, no thing, no force can, can move God otherwise. No sin, no evil, no matter how great it is, can cause God's will to ever change. Numbers 23 verse 19 explains, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The scriptures are telling us God is not like us. We change our plans every single day. We're always altering what we think and what we do and why we're doing it. But not so with God. 1 Samuel 15, 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And we can yet go forward. God is unchangeable in his covenant purposes. There is no fickleness in God's love for his people. There is no unsteadiness in God's grace. There is no half-heartedness in God's welcome of sinners. Nor is there ever any weakening of his mercy for his people. God is immutable. That means his salvation is utterly dependable. Romans 11.29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And because of that, his saving purpose shall be completed. Nothing shall thwart his purpose for his people. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And because of God's immutable purpose for his people, God's people can rejoice in him. Secure, stable. Romans 8 38 and 39, Paul leads us in boasting in the immutable God. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we doubt even at this point, saying, well, maybe my sin will break God's immutable purpose for me in Christ, in the gospel, God says, no. 
Malachi 3, 6, the Lord says this to Israel's grievous sin. I am the Lord, I change not. And so we can then rest in our God and his purposes for us. Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means for God to be immutable. That's who he is. That's what it means for God to be God as he truly is. And we're just sketching the outlines of this great doctrine. But now I want to turn here. We've heard some illustrations. God is a rock. God is a sun. And then we've applied this doctrine of immutability to God himself and what it means for God to be immutable. And now we need to ask, well, what does immutability mean for me? What does it mean for you? Or to put it another way, what should you do with a God like this? What should you do with a God like this? So let's circle back to the beginning of the sermon. So I started with a series of words, doubt, insecurity, fickleness, anxiety. Those are words we know well. And just think about your last six days of life. Think about the last week. How many doubts did you face this last week? How much anxiety did you deal with the last week? How much fickleness? How many times did you change your plan last week? How much insecurity did you feel? Now, this world that we live in has all sorts of fixes for these words because these are the great issues of our day. These are the issues that are plaguing us specifically as a people And so the world has all these different answers for these words. Some fixes point us inwards. They counsel, try to ground yourself on yourself. Try to discover your your true personality. And if you can discover your true personality, landing on who you truly and really are, then you will be secure and stable and you will be able to rest in yourself. It'll be good. Others counsel differently. They say, find your innermost desires explore them, and don't even just explore them, but give vent to them, whatever they might be. And as you give vent to them, sating them with whatever you need and want, then then you'll become secure and stable. Then you'll be okay. And so some fixes point us inward again and again. Look inside yourself, your personality, your desires, sate them, find them. Other fixes point us in other directions. There's the time-old direction to to go after things like money and career. And the hope is that if we, we go after these external things, these measuring marks, we accumulate them and grab hold of them, that we'll be able to somehow stand up on them and then be secure and stable. There are others as well. There's, there's those who point to health and wellness. Maybe if you could just take control of your body Maybe you can just take control of that appetite and suppress those those cravings and and finally get in shape and train and train and train and train. Then you will finally be stable and secure. If you can just master yourself and your body and your appetite and the pain that comes with it, then you'll be stable and secure. All will be well for you. But here's the truth. None of those things are rocks and all who lean on such things will be disappointed. So here's the principle we need to learn in light of this great doctrine. It's this. As creatures, we are only as stable and steady as the rock on which we stand. That's the truth. As creatures, we are only as stable and steady as the rock on which we stand. And so if your rock is 
your personality and discovering it and landing on it and expressing it, you have a very fickle rock to stand on. Or if your rock is wealth and you're accumulating in hopes of being able to stand upon it someday, don't do it. You won't be able to stand on it. Or fitness or training, that's going to be your rock. You're going to base your life on it. Here's the news, you're going to die. And this explains why in our present day there's so much anxiety, doubt, and insecurity. It's endemic. It's everywhere. It's in everything. Why? Because we've exchanged as a society the immovable, immutable God. We've pushed aside this great rock on which we can stand, and we've just instead built our lives on this, these shifting sands. We think again and again. We go to these shifting stands. Ha, ah, this will work finally. So what should we do with this doctrine? I want to give you a quote here. Last week, we ended with a big quote from an old dead Dutch guy, and this week, we're going to go back to the old dead Dutch guys. This is a different old dead Dutch guy, and his name's Herman Bavink, and he, he says this, and it's so helpful. Let me just read him. He says, all that is creaturely is in the process of becoming. It is changeable, constantly shifting in search of rest and satisfaction and finds this rest only in him who is pure being without becoming. We humans can rely upon him. He does not change in his being, knowing or willing. He eternally remains who he is. He cannot change for the better or for the worse for he is absolute, the complete, the true being. He rests in himself and is for that very reason the ultimate goal, the resting place of all his creatures, the rock of salvation whose work is complete. Did you hear that? It is loaded with truth. Who are we? We are creatures. And that means we're always in the process of becoming. We're changeable. We're constantly shifting. And that means we're searching always for rest and satisfaction. And who is God? He is pure being without becoming. He does not change in his being, knowing, or willing. He eternally remains who he is. He is absolute, the complete, the true being. He is the rock of our salvation. And what does that mean? Bavink tells us this. There's only rest in him. Did you see how he framed that? Who is God? God rests in himself. What a phrase to just consider and think about. God rests in himself. And what does Bavink tell us to do? We need to rest in the one who rests in himself. And so how do we deal with our doubts and our anxieties, our fears and our insecurities? How do we bid them to cease? We go to the immutable God. We leave behind the false rocks. We leave behind the shifting sands. And we go to the immovable rock, the only rock, our God, the immutable God the one who rests in himself. And so I call to you at the end of this sermon, are you troubled today? Are you troubled by many things? I can tell you this, there's an everlasting balm for your soul. He is the immutable God, you should go to him. Are you full of doubting and fear? Is that your life? Well, I can tell you there is an immovable rock that you can put your feet on. It doesn't matter how bad the storm gets. That rock will never move. It is the rock that David went to in Psalm 61. And you can say with David, there is a rock higher than I. Lead me to it. I need it. Or we can go with James. There's a true and perfect sun shining above us. Are you insecure? You feel it day by day by day. You feel this lack and want in your soul. 
There is a God and he is true and he never changes and he bids you to come. Come stand upon me. Come bask in my rays. Come. And here's the promise. If you heed these calls, if you go to the immutable God and if you stand your feet upon him, here's the promise. You will become stable, you will become secure, and you will find steadfastness in your life if you put your feet on him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need this great doctrine. We need it so badly. We cannot live without your immutability. And though we may have never thought about it before, we, we see it clearly this morning that you are a rock. And we cannot live if our feet are not set upon you. And so would you grant us faith in this moment, even right now, to go to you. To put our feet on you and to rest in you. We need your help. Fill us with faith. Be merciful to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.